are you? Hi, Serena. How are you doing? I'm really good. It's so nice to see you. Me too. I know you're just across the river from me in New Jersey. How have you been, Doc? I think I am enjoying a little bit more openness, but I have to stay. We work so hard to completely turn our lives totally upside down that we can't just snap our fingers, right, and just go back. I carry a mask with me, you know, wherever I go, and I'm always like, should I put it on? Should I not put it on? It's tricky, right? Even until now, I'm kind of like traumatized though. I don't know how the weather has been there for New Jersey, but here's been like raining then hot, raining then hot. So I started to get like coughs. I'm like, oh my gosh, do I have the variant? Do I, is it just the weather? I'm like, oh my <laughs> this pandemic really changed everyone's mindset since the beginning. I know. But Dr. Serena, again, I'm so thankful and I'm so excited for you to be here. If you could just first please introduce yourself to everyone who's watching us today. Sure. My name is Serena Chen. I'm the Director of Reproductive Medicine at St. Barnabas Medical Center in Livingston, New Jersey, and at the Institute for Reproductive Medicine and Science, IRMS. We're a big reproductive medicine practice to make a lot of babies, freeze a lot of eggs for women all over New Jersey, offices in Livingston and Hoboken, Teaneck, East Windsor, Old Bridge, and Clark. A lot of great doctors, so I'm just really happy to be here. That's amazing. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about tonight. But before all of that, so I started this also as a way for me to really find out about the journeys of how physicians and you know other clinicians have got to where they are. So if you could please tell us, even though I know it's known to many how long the medical journey is, if you could please give us a timeline of how you reached the point of where you are now. So four years of college, four years of medical school. <laughs> four years of OBGYN residency. So I am a gynecologist, OBGYN gynecologist, although I don't deliver babies anymore. And then three years of fellowship and then a board certified reproductive endocrinologist. Although I've been doing this for a while. I'm not going to tell you how long. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. I won't ask, Doc. Uh, <laughs> such a long road. And for sure, there must be some root of motivation from all of this. So where did this all start? Was there a family member who's in medicine or a friend or a personal experience that led you to pursuing this both of my parents are physicians. Actually, we have a lot of physicians in the family and they grew up in Taiwan and mm. I'm a first generation American. So, you know, it's kind of a joke, but it's kind of true that first generation Asian American, especially of two doctors, <laughs> and I was the first child, I had to get straight A's, play the violin and the piano. There was no choice, doc. <laughs> yes, and go to medical school. That's what it just, there was no choice. <laughs> There's no choice. That's what always I'm curious about. Like, where is this motivation coming from? And, and most times, yeah, it's probably from family members. I've had a few docs here as well. Both of their parents are physicians. So that's why I always say you had no choice. You <laughs> literally had no choice. Given through all of that, doc, years of education and training, long road, money and time spent. Do you have any regrets now at this moment in time pursuing this path? You know, I really can't say that I do. You know, I think it was really difficult and there were times where and I still feel and we could talk about this some more I still feel mm -hmm. there's a lot that's broken in healthcare and maybe you and I probably encounter it every day there's many many challenges it's very expensive it's not mm -hmm. patient friendly but I do feel there's a lot of things that we can do 
as individuals and as a society to change it. And that always gives me hope and really energizes me. So I know I don't, I guess I don't really have any regrets, even though I try, I did try in college to be a computer programmer instead of a doctor, but it just didn't agree with me. So there was no choice, doc. It was, it was the parent's (laughs) destiny. That's so inspiring to hear, especially, I guess, someone who's in the track of this field, right? That people who already made it after years, there's no regrets. But still, like you said, there are flaws in the system. And still, given that, if there's one piece of advice or, I guess, motivation, or if you want to steer away people, students who are pre-med students or pre-health students or medical students, what is that one piece of advice that you would give someone? I think to have a worldview instead of a narrow view that it really takes a whole village to have healthy people to heal people and to help people so it's not just about the doctor Mm -hmm. it's about the entire team including the patient Mm -hmm. and I think that's something that I really wasn't taught because I go way back and you know that there's a lot of elements of just hierarchy and patriarchy Mm -hmm. built into the healthcare system. And I think a lot of the openness and education that we're seeing on social media is really refreshing and Mm -hmm. new and not something that we necessarily trained with. So I think for young people that are going into healthcare, I think there's enormous challenges, but those are all opportunities to make a change. And I think when you're making a change, you have to think outside the box. And I do love this idea of bringing in everybody. It's not about just the doctor. You know, doctors tend to be very doctor centric. (laughs) It's about the entire care team and also the patient and the patient's family and the patient's community Mm -hmm. as well. There's so much to talk about. I agree. But, you know, I guess maybe that's the one thing I feel that I don't know that we're really taught that in medical school because Mm -hmm. it's very focused on, you know, pathophysiology and pharmacology and disease and things like that. But the human elements make a huge difference in whether you're successful or not though. I love that dog. That is so amazing. That's very important, especially this season, right? It just started yes. July. Re- interns just started coming into the hospital fresh out of medical school. And as a nurse on the floor too, right? I deal with a lot of teaching. I go, I'm in a teaching hospital. So we do have interns. We do have a resident program. I feel like that's a very important advice, especially when it comes to teamwork, right? Especially with other interdisciplinary teams. And I just want you to take me back to that time, July whenever when you started internship and like you said you specialized in OBGYN so my first question is why OBGYN where did this inspiration come from to go into this field so I was interested in everything in medical school (laughs) and I went to Duke and it was a wonderful place to be everything seemed interesting but I have to say that when I got into my OBGYN rotation I just really clicked with the Mm -hmm. residents very happy group very energetic group Mm -hmm. and you know one day like everybody was off saving a mom and a woman came in and had her third child and basically she delivered her own baby but I happened to be there to help catch the baby while everybody was away and I was just I was hooked 
you know. That's so, uh, you know, and then after I did OBGYN, IVF was really kind of in its infancy and, and really very, very new and interesting. I was interested in all the fields in OBGYN because there's general OBGYN, mm-hmm. there's high-risk OB, there is cancer, mm-hmm. urogynecology, and then there's reproductive medicine. Mm-hmm. There's also, you know, these days, family planning, fellowships. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of different areas you can actually subspecialize in yeah. OBGYN, but at the time, reproductive medicine and IVF was really just starting like the pregnancy rates were still low a lot of places didn't have IVF programs so it really grabbed my attention I was like wow this is going to be amazing and there's going to be a lot of changes and I want to be part of that yes and years after for sure you have been part of so many changes through all of that what do you think is the most fulfilling part of being in this field of OBGYN? For me, it's the fact that I have the privilege of getting to know hundreds, maybe even thousands of people Mm -hmm. on a very personal level and really making a difference in their lives. Mm -hmm. That's like, I meet so many different Mm -hmm. kinds of people every single day and every single person has an interesting story and an interesting background and they all do have their own challenges so you know i don't have to really look for a purpose and meaning in life because it's the patients give it to me every day so that is hugely satisfying the other thing is that and this i think i just got lucky is that right now reproductive medicine reproductive technology is incredibly successful. The technology is moving forward so fast and basically at this point where we can get anybody pregnant, okay? (laughs) The catch is you might not always want to do the treatments that I recommend, you know, because we've got some crazy, crazy (laughs) things that we can recommend. Anybody who's seeing me is not necessarily having a baby the way they thought they were going to have a baby, right? They thought this was going to be romance, candles, between the sheets, that kind of thing. But um, yeah, not in the doctor's office. So obviously it's a different pathway, Mm -hmm. but the technology can work for everybody. And Mm -hmm. so I'm in the lucky position of being able to tell people, you know, I think we can help you. So the hard part is sometimes people need really challenging things to help them. Like they need in vitro fertilization and some people don't feel comfortable with that. Some people don't feel comfortable with sperm donation or egg donation or using a gestational surrogate to carry their baby, you know, so those can be really tough. And there's nothing wrong with that. So some people do end up saying, you know, this is not going to be my pathway. But what I hope I get everybody to the point of no regrets that at the very least, you can feel like I knew all the options, I really understood all the options, I really had a doctor thoroughly evaluate me. And I made this decision for my myself, my body and my family. And I made the best decision for myself, my body and my family, even though I didn't necessarily take the path or have the exact Mm -hmm. outcome that I wanted. Does that make sense? Super makes sense. And I'm so excited to talk about those pathways that you have mentioned. Like again, almost anyone can get pregnant now, right? Doc, especially with all of the options that we will talk about. But let's take it back to the, say the ideal reproduction. For those who may not know about the stages or whatnot, can you give us just a quick timeline of how it occurs naturally, per se, from like ovulation to fertilization and all of that? So typically, you're supposed to have a 28-day cycle. So from day one of your period to the next day one of your 
period on average is about 28 days. Anywhere from 25 to 35 days is normal. And most people ovulate around day 14, 15. So day 10 to 15, the few days before ovulation is your fertile time. You should have intercourse for a couple, you know, twice before that time, but you don't have to time it precisely. Mm -hmm. So what we say is that a healthy person with no risk factors who's under 35 can take up to a year to conceive on their own. Now, having said that, over 35, we usually say we really want you to get an evaluation after six months. And honestly, Chris, I feel like everybody deserves a conversation. So you haven't even tried at all, but you feel like you want some information, you want an evaluation, you should get it. We all know the insurance companies are like, well, we don't want to pay for infertility testing (laughs) because you don't meet that criteria. But I really believe that people should be proactive and you should talk with your gynecologist Mm -hmm. and say, you know, I probably don't have any problems, but how do you know for sure? Mm -hmm. Let's just get a basic checkup. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that at Mm -hmm. all. Now we are seeing, you know, we've talked about becoming a medical professional and we are seeing that the normal rate of infertility affects millions of people, one in six. And of course, there's a lot of people who have what we call social infertility, are LGBTQ people and single people, you know, so all of those people can't even really, quote unquote, try on their own and need assistance to get pregnant. And then if you look at medical professionals, actually, the study hasn't been done in males that I know of. Mm-hmm. But in female physicians actually have a rate of difficulty having a baby of one in four mm-hmm. instead of one in eight, mm-hmm. which is twice the general population. Mm-hmm. So that's something, you know, all of your followers, I think, should know about. Yeah. And we are seeing a lot of people delaying childbearing. So, you know, the most rapidly growing group of new mothers is over 40. Mm-hmm. And yet, over 40, a lot of people already have infertility just because that's just mother nature. It's just harder to get pregnant as you get older. Like you said, as the years are passing by, right, we're seeing, I feel like also heightened rates of women delaying pregnancies because they're achieving higher education, right? I feel like within my generation as well, there's a lot to, oh, I don't want to have a baby for now. Right. Um, that leads me on to my question of, is there an ideal age then where someone should get pregnant? I know that the ovarian reserve of women diminishes as age comes about. And so for you, is there a perfect time or age for a woman to get pregnant? You know, you have to separate that from the biology versus the social aspect. Mm -hmm. And I think every year that a woman delays childbearing Mm -hmm. is over $10,000 increase in her annual income. Mm -hmm. So it's a (laughs) huge economic factor. Yeah. to delay childbearing. And that's why, because our whole society is actually built around that. We encourage everybody to get education, to work on their careers. And delaying childbearing really does make an economic difference. So, you know, ideally from a biological perspective, theoretically, your eggs start aging around age 27. You know, mm-hmm. not that much, but they start aging around 27, around 35, we see a, a bigger dip around 40, even bigger dip. And a lot of people are at zero fertility by 43, 44. And yet that from a social perspective, that's often kind of an ideal age for a lot of people to conceive because mm-hmm. then they're established in their career. They've got the mm-hmm. house, they've got, you know, they have all the resources to, you know, really support their family. So, you know, we have this dichotomy in our society. It's really tough. 
and everybody has to come to their own individual conclusion. But I think from my perspective, I really want everybody to see their GYN on a regular basis. And if you're in your early 30s and you don't think you're getting pregnant really soon, I'd like people to think about freezing their eggs. Which we will also talk about. I am so excited. <laughs> that being said, yes, maybe at 40 or 43, this is the right time for me to get pregnant and to conceive, right? But biologically, Doc, what are the implications of pregnancy at that age? So that's a great question. Everybody asks, can I carry at this mm -hmm. age? And honestly, if you're super healthy, mm -hmm. I don't worry about the carrying so much. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, as people go into their 40s, we do see much higher rates of obesity, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, fibroids, endometriosis, lipid issues, sugar issues. Mm -hmm. So definitely those things all increase as you get older. But you and I both know, especially you, right, as a cardiac nurse, you know that a lot of this stuff is preventable. Yeah. Like if we eat healthy, eat a lot of vegetables, avoid sugar, exercise, get good sleep, you can do things like prevent diabetes, prevent cardiovascular disease, things like that. So those things, you can be really healthy. So a really healthy person between like in their early 40s, mm -hmm. the carrying the pregnancy and delivery, a little bit higher risk. But you have a good doctor, the vast majority of people will do really, really well. So I don't actually worry about that so much if you're healthy. The thing that's really hard is Mother Nature has programmed our eggs to just have more chromosomal issues mm -hmm. as you get older. This is literally, it seems like right now, this is where the biological clock really ticks for women. That as you get older, you have higher rates of having eggs that will have an extra or missing chromosome. And so you make embryos that are aneuploid, extra missing chromosomes, just not 46 chromosomes like you're supposed to have. And then that's when you see higher rates of miscarriage. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of miscarriages are caused by an extra missing chromosome. Mm -hmm. Higher rates of Down syndrome, right? Mm -hmm. That's an extra chromosome 21. Mm -hmm. Higher rates of infertility because a lot of these abnormal eggs will not fertilize and not implant. Mm -hmm. So that part, it doesn't matter how many veggies we eat or how healthy we are. We don't seem to be able to change that. And it doesn't matter how fertile our genes are, everybody, even if you have very high fertility or very low fertility, everybody goes down with age. Yeah. And that part, we don't understand very well. It literally seems to be genetically programmed into human eggs. So that's the tough part. It's actually a positive note on that in regards to the ages of 40, because I feel like that's what a lot of women are very worried about, right? That mother nature finally takes course, like the biological clock finally comes into play. When I started promoting our live stream, a lot of my followers actually sent in questions. I love how they worded it. I think around five of them used the same word, the same term. They said, what are the threats to an ideal pregnancy? And they were saying things like PCOS or fibroids or long-term use of birth control. Are these aspects threatening to the possible so long-term use of birth control actually prevents progression of endometriosis and protects PCOS patients from cancer and normalizes a lot of their hormones. And people who are on long-term birth control seem to have a lower incidence of problematic fibroids. So long-term birth control pills actually have a tremendous number of non-contraceptive benefits. Mm -hmm. And the rate of infertility for people 
who use long-term birth control is exactly the same as the rate of infertility, about, it's about 15%, the rate of infertility in general population. So we don't see an association between long-term birth control or short-term birth control and infertility. Obviously, while you're actually on the pills, yeah. you know, it's a contraceptive, but it does not confer infertility like after you stop it. It does slow down after you stop birth control pills. Mm-hmm. The first six months after you stop is a little bit slower to conceive than normal. But once you reach that six month mark, everybody's the same whether you use birth control pills or not. Now, fibroids definitely progress with age and are very common. Most of the time don't cause a problem with infertility but sometimes can be really large and cause a problem. And that is something you could get checked out with your GYN. And if there's an issue or you have a strong family history of it, then you should check out your fibroids. But probably we're doing a little too much surgery and maybe a little too much worrying about fibroids. So if somebody tells you you need to take your fibroids out, you do have to be careful because fibroids coming out actually can cause infertility because it can cause scar tissue in the pelvis. So you probably, before you have your fibroids taken out, you should see a fertility specialist first, at least get a second opinion. PCOS, huge. We think that's, you know, oh my God, like 10, 20% of the population, Mm -hmm. it's crazy. Mm -hmm. And we need more education, more information, more research dollars. It can affect Mm -hmm. cardiac health, higher rates of diabetes, higher rates of obesity, higher rates of hyperlipidemia, higher rates of cancer Mm -hmm. and PCOS. The typical case, you have irregular periods. And maybe you're overweight, maybe you've got some acne and some extra like Mm -hmm. hair growth, but the most common thing is the irregular periods. And you have irregular periods that usually means you're not ovulating on a regular basis and Mm -hmm. you definitely have to get checked out. So those ladies should not be waiting to see a fertility specialist or to talk about fertility with their GYM. That's super helpful, Doc, because I do have friends who are on oral contraceptives and I feel like their biggest worry is, yes, of course, they won't conceive now, but the fear is the long term. Right, like, long term. Don't conceive at all yeah. in the future because of accumulation of the contraceptive elements in my body. So it's great to hear that. That's why education, patient education is so important. There are a lot of myths going around and most of them are rooted in fear, right? Fear of infertility. Yeah. We'll talk about this too later about the vaccines and the claims of infertility as well. We've been talking about this word a lot so far is the word infertility when is the moment or is there like a biological marker or episode where yes someone is infertile versus someone who's just difficult to conceive the vast majority of people that are defined as infertility are really just having a little more trouble Mm -hmm. most people are not like totally sterile Most people are, you know, we define it by, oh, you're taking longer than average. So, you know, you're over 35 and it's taken Mm -hmm. you and you're six months of unprotected intercourse and you're not pregnant or you're under 35 and it's 12 months of unprotected Mm -hmm. intercourse and you're not pregnant. And really a lot of those people may be able to conceive on their own. So it's really Mm -hmm. just, they're just having a little more trouble. It's not Mm -hmm. true sterility. I asked about this because... I just think back to, you know, there's movies where couples trying to conceive goes to the doctor's office and the doctor tells them, oh, you can't have babies. And of course, they start crying, right? Because they have plans on having a family. And it just made me think of how true is that in real life? Like, what is the percentage of those who are claimed to be infertile are actually 
infertile versus, like you said, just having right. difficulty to conceive. Segwaying to that topic of conception, people have sent questions about their ovarian reserve tests, about AMH. Yes. Can you please talk about that? Is that is such a great topic. So AMH, I'm so glad that you brought that up. Anti-malarian hormone. Everybody is talking about anti-malarian hormone. And there are a lot of studies. It's a very exciting test. Very easy to do. You know, your doctor just orders a blood test, but it can be tricky. So if the blood test doesn't make sense, you definitely need to repeat it because if you don't handle the blood correctly, it can throw off the levels a lot. If you're on birth control pills, it can artificially lower the levels. If you're after ovulation, it can artificially lower the levels. So the best time to get this test is in the early follicular phase, like around day three of your cycle, not on chronic birth control pills. Now, have Having said that, the vast majority of the scientific studies done on AMH are from the IVF world and people doing IVF are already all infertile or the vast majority are. So from our perspective, AMH is helpful to me to diagnose PCOS. It's not officially part of the criteria, but PCOS patients tend to have much higher levels of AMH. It's very helpful for me to decide how much medication should I give somebody who's doing IVF? Should I give them a lot? Should I give them a little? AMH really helps me decide because it helps to predict your response to the drugs. But a recent huge study done in a general population that was trying to conceive but not infertile out of University of North Carolina, they looked at AMH levels and they found that even though in IVF patients, we worry that if you have a low AMH, that your pregnancy rate, it may not be as good as somebody with a high AMH. What we saw in the general population is that low AMH does not predict infertility. The low mm -hmm. AMH people still were perfectly fertile. So we still don't understand this test so well. So the idea that one single test can mm -hmm. tell you whether you can have a baby or you can't have a baby is totally wrong. You know, so I think if you're worried about your AMH, think about repeating it, think about mm -hmm. seeing a fertility specialist, mm -hmm. have a real conversation. Don't just make conclusions based on, you know, an article you read. Yeah, I think also in healthcare doctor, right? especially within the clinical level, numbers are such a big thing. Numbers, yeah. numbers are such a big thing. Oh, my blood pressure is this. My blood sugar is this. I think it goes the same with AMH levels, right? Which yeah. I feel like why a lot of women who get the test are so worried about it, especially in a one-time test. What I always say is someone with a blood pressure reading, right? It might be okay for that person. But yeah. if that blood pressure was another person, they're probably going to syncopize the next five minutes. <laughs> and I like what you said about maybe repeating the image test, and it's not totally indicative of infertility and also i feel like i would expect that amh levels would probably fluctuate every month they so do they they month, can definitely and fluctuate. Then next month it probably would be different so yeah and they're not so i like to tell people it can be above average average mm -hmm. below average mm -hmm. but it's not that yeah. precise not much so more precise than that what do you think is the gold standard then if there is in determining someone's heightened possibility to so I feel like, you know, we like to consider normal like 1.52. Mm -hmm. And if you're getting into really high levels, like over four, you're mm -hmm. thinking about maybe that person has a lot of eggs, which
which is great, but they might be a little bit PCO-ish. And then under one, we start to think, oh, you know, maybe we're a little bit concerned about Mm -hmm. eggs, but you have to put it into context. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody who's like in their 20s, they have a low AMH, they're in their 20s and your age really is a positive factor. And so, and your general health and what about other things like what's going on with the sperm, what's going on with the tube, Mm -hmm. all of those, and what kinds Mm -hmm. of treatments is the person willing to go through because you can't just draw a conclusion about somebody based upon just one single factor. Yeah. And I would expect also that someone's image levels throughout the years would like decline, right? As they age. Yes. Um, is that a big factor for you in encouraging someone who comes into your clinic? and be like, oh, maybe it's time, or maybe you should consider freezing your eggs. You know, I don't think it's unreasonable Mm -hmm. to say, well, the AMH maybe is a little bit on Mm -hmm. the low side, and maybe that means you're going to consider freezing your eggs Mm -hmm. sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. But I don't think you can say, okay, this level means you need to freeze your eggs, Mm -hmm. and this level means you don't need to freeze your Mm -hmm. eggs. Because for me, the egg freezing question is really about having no regrets. You know, we have this national guideline from American Society for Reproductive Medicine, ASRM, and ASCO, American Society for Clinical Oncology. Everybody, every woman, reproductive age, facing cancer, should be counseled regarding egg freezing. But that doesn't mean everybody, every cancer patient should freeze her eggs. Mm -hmm. It really is like you should talk to a doctor you should have a full evaluation, you should really understand the risks and the benefits, the pros and the cons and the costs. And then hopefully you get to a point where you can say, I really made the right decision for myself whether that's freezing your eggs or not. And I've seen both sides, uh, like people who feel pressured, who don't want to freeze their eggs and feel pressured to freeze their eggs just because everybody else, all their friends are freezing their eggs, yeah. right? And that doesn't make any sense. I think the biggest thing is really not about freezing your eggs. Mm-hmm regardless of what level your AMH is, the biggest thing is not having any regrets about your decision, which means you have to be informed. Mm-hmm. And while we are at that topic of not having any regrets in relation to freezing your eggs, for those who, who do not know, they come to your clinic and they're like, doc, I want to freeze my egg. What's next? How does it actually work? How is someone's eggs frozen? So we do a very thorough evaluation. I want to know everything about your history and your family history. And we do a full exam, heart, lungs, breast exam, a vaginal ultrasound. We will check your AMH and check other things like your blood count and your sugar and all kinds of other things, because we want to know about your general health too, that does impact your reproductive potential and let you understand all your risk factors. I mean, a big way, you know, we talk about egg freezing as fertility preservation, but another way to preserve your fertility is doing things like quitting smoking, things like that, like you're saving a lot of eggs. Then we give people a real education. They do go through videos, they read consent forms, they talk with the financial advisor. More and more companies are covering egg freezing, but a lot of people have to pay out of pocket. And Mm -hmm. our program really believes that everybody should have the option to freeze their eggs. Mm -hmm. So we do try to offer people who don't have insurance significant discounts. Mm -hmm. And then people have to figure out, you know, when am I starting? What am I doing? You want to feel comfortable with all the medications and the injection technique because you do have to take injections, little tiny injections for six to 10 days. So once you're ready to freeze your eggs, you're hopefully have your schedule not too busy, maybe have some friends who are going to be your cycle buddies and give you some support 
and TLC, somebody who's going to give you a ride home from the egg retrieval, maybe a friend help you with the injections, although you could definitely do the injections yourself. You know, a lot of people are nervous about it. Even my most needle phobic ladies, after the nurse does it a few times, they're just like, oh gosh, this is too much trouble. I'm going to, I'm going to do this myself. So you've got all your medications in the fridge and you start, you go ultrasound and blood work your first day. And if everything looks good, your nurse sends you your instructions Mm -hmm. and you do your first two injections, two injections a night for three nights, come back and see us, Mm -hmm. ultrasound and blood work. We'll see how your follicles, the little stacks around the eggs are growing and we check your hormone levels, see how they're responding and maybe adjust your medication. Two more days of injections, we come back and then we usually add a third injection. So the first two injections are kind of to stimulate the ovary and the third injection is to prevent you from releasing the eggs too quickly. So then you're usually taking three injections a day and from that point on, we're usually seeing you every day until it's time for your trigger shot. And when it's time for your trigger shot, you do have to take that at kind of the a very precise time because we're timing your egg retrieval almost exactly 35 to 36 hours after your trigger shot. So since we do the egg retrievals in the morning, you're doing, let's say, um, if you have your egg retrieval scheduled on Wednesday morning, that means Monday night you're doing your trigger shot. So let's say Monday night at 10 p.m. means Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. We're taking your eggs out and we test everybody for COVID or you're vaccinated. You know, it depends on your, you know, your surge center rules. And the day of the retrieval, you have an empty stomach, nothing to eat or drink after midnight. You go in, you sign a lot of paperwork, right? Tons of paperwork. <laughs> and then you get an IV, you go to sleep for 10 minutes. It's just 10 minutes. And it's a 17 gauge needle. So a needle that's really not much, yeah. almost the same size as your blood drawing needle. 17 gauge needle through the top of the vagina. Just a little bit of tissue at the top of the vagina goes right into the ovaries. Five minutes to the right ovary, five minutes to the left ovary. You wake up in the recovery room. Your eggs are in the lab. That's it. Maybe you're a little crampy. You're a little bloated. You can work every day through this except the day of the retrieval and the day after you have to take off because you've had some anesthesia. But most everybody just runs in the morning ultrasound and blood work and then they go off and do their regular day. You know, that's... That's it. You know, about a week later, you get your period, you get a scan, and usually people's ovaries are right back to normal by then. So That's amazing. But a big question, despite the intricacy of, and yet the simplicity of, like, those 10 minutes, what is the guarantee that after these eggs have been frozen, that one or more will do its job in the future? So that's, that's a tough one. What we're seeing right now in our lab, and every lab is different, but we like to think our lab has some of the best pregnancy rates. I would say for every six eggs, we are getting two gorgeous embryos, and each embryo has about a 50% chance of a baby. So if you do the math, that means if you put away 18 to 21 eggs, you're in the 90 percentile in terms of getting a baby. Now, some people might get more than one baby, some people might get less. There's definitely no guarantee because not every egg will fertilize, not every fertilized egg makes an embryo, not every embryo makes a baby. So definitely a numbers game. Mm-hmm. And getting 18 to 21 eggs in the freezer often requires more than one retrieval mm-hmm. to do that. Because typically people are like making able to freeze half a dozen or a dozen eggs. Now, I will tell you that everybody's different. The younger you are, I tend to be able to freeze more eggs. 
Mm -hmm. uh, than the older patients. I have a couple of patients who froze a ton of retrievals and froze over a hundred eggs and yet, you know, didn't end up with a baby, but very happy now with, with a donor egg baby. And I have a patient who was only able to freeze one egg, took a ton of drugs and froze only one egg and that egg became a baby. So <laughs> it's, you know, you it's, never know. You yeah. never know. You never know. So that's where we come up with the no regrets. We want you to feel like, understand that you are doing something for yourself and trying to put yourself in a better position for the future and improve your odds. It's not a guarantee, but we want you to do it because we want you, you know, you have to feel comfortable. It's a very personal decision. And speaking of guarantee, I feel like another service offered by the OBGYN infertility field is the amazing science behind in vitro fertilization. People are willing to give their money for the science with the hope that, yeah, they will have a baby. But I know that there are some who still don't know what in vitro is, what IVF is. So if you could explain what IVF is and the wonder behind it. Yeah, it's amazing. So the first IVF baby was born in 1978. It's basically in vitro fertilization just means fertilization outside the body. So once we get those eggs out, we put it together with sperm and we grow the embryo in the lab. And usually we have multiple embryos and we pick the nicest one. And a lot of times we can actually do genetic testing on those embryos and figure out if the chromosome number is normal before we put the embryo in the uterus. So in vitro fertilization, IVF and pre-implantation genetic testing, PGT has really taken off in the United States and other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. It's just growing logarithmically and pregnancy rates just keep going up. Now, we can say that for a lot of people that respond well to the IVF drugs and can make embryos, we feel like if they can keep making embryos, eventually they're going to get to the baby, even though each embryo probably only has a 50 to 60% chance mm -hmm. of making a baby, even though one try of IVF usually is nowhere near 100%. We know that if people can keep trying and persist, that a lot of people will end up with a healthy baby. So that's actually our biggest challenge now, Chris, mm -hmm. is in the United States, the number one reason for failing to succeed with fertility treatment is health insurance coverage or you know, there's just such a stressful process that people become depressed and just it's not can't. Cheap. Yeah. Yeah, they just can't carry on. So that's hopefully our job is to make it work, to make it accessible, to help people be able to afford it by using a lot of resources, maximizing insurance and having a healthy mind and body so you can weather all the work and the stress that is required to get to where you want to go. And great, we have the embryo outside the body via the science. But what if there's a problem inside the one who, who would host the embryo? What if there's like a pathology behind the fallopian tube or whatnot? What do we do then? Number one, I would say that 95% of the pregnancy is really lies within the embryo. Mm. When a woman has a miscarriage, they always ask me, what did I do wrong? Is there something I need to do differently? Was it my fault? Mm -hmm. And it's actually really hard to make yourself miscarry. Mm -hmm. And miscarriages happen in one in every four pregnancies. That is the normal healthy rate, one in four. And if you have infertility or a miscarriage problem, it could be significantly higher. 
And the vast majority of the time, it's an embryo issue. It's not really an issue with the mom. Now, having said that, I don't want you to smoke. I want you to take your prenatals. I want you to eat a lot of veggies mm -hmm. and not eat a lot of sugar and, you know, take care of yourself. And yes, we want the uterus to look really nice. So if there's a big polyp or a fibroid mm -hmm. sitting in the middle of the uterus, we do think that taking that out and clearing that up and making the uterus look nice lowers your risk for pregnancy loss and improves the chances for implantation. But the truth is human embryos can implant outside the uterus. One of my residents a few years ago was working on a mission in Africa, and she delivered a baby, a healthy baby from a woman. The baby was outside the uterus. The woman came to see her because she was like, I'm not going into labor. Something's wrong. And they, you know, when they opened up the belly, the baby was outside the uterus and both mom and baby did well. That doesn't happen in the United States because we have so much imaging, but yeah. it just goes to show you in humans, the uterus is in some ways there more for the mother to protect the mother and not necessarily to nurture the baby because the baby's healthy it will do well. Now, having said that, we definitely would like the uterus to be as healthy as it can be. And if your tubes are scarred, we do have to be really careful. Like what if the embryo gets stuck mm -hmm. in the tube? Yeah. Uh, that's an ectopic pregnancy and that can actually kill the mom early in the first trimester. So we do have to be careful about that. I don't know if I answered your question or not. Definitely, Doc. When <laughs> would surrogacy be ever an option? Okay, so surrogacy we use a lot for our gay couples to help mm -hmm. them conceive because they have sperm, but no egg and no uterus. So we use surrogacy for our gay couples. And the exciting thing in New York, your state and New Jersey, my state, we both just had within the last year, gestational surrogacy laws passed mm -hmm. to help everybody using surrogates be able to have children this way more easily. Because traditionally, if the baby comes out of your vagina, mm -hmm. the traditional legal approach is, well, that baby legally belongs to that person. But of course, if you're using a surrogate mm -hmm. the baby belongs to the mom and the dad not to the person who's delivering the baby and you have to have special laws to protect the surrogate and the parent but for medical surrogacy cardiovascular disease is actually mm -hmm. one big one let's say somebody has an artificial valve somebody has a history of cardiomyopathy somebody has severe lupus somebody had a hysterectomy because of cancer Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of different reasons that you might need surrogacy for, but it's actually not such a common thing. Mm -hmm. So it is much more common to have infertility involving the egg rather than the uterus. But there are definitely cases where surrogacy is important. And then this is not surrogacy, but a lot of my lesbian couples will say do IVF and do something called reciprocal IVF or co-maternity mm -hmm. where one makes an embryo from her egg mm -hmm. and the other partner can carry and so they can both be biological mom got it i was actually into this a big question was is reproductive medicine is for women do men have to see the gyns as well and i think in this topic of lgbtq plus family planning you know physically they might be healthy there might be no problems but there still stands a logistical problem right right let's say in a lesbian couple they both have eggs but there's no sperm in a gay couple they both have sperm but there's no eggs or uterus and to conceive you need the trifecta right you need yeah. all three um, need the so, so aside from surrogacy are there what are the ways that you incorporate this demographic into family planning within the reproductive medicine field 
for lesbian couples, it's a little bit easier because they have eggs and uteruses. Mm -hmm. So a lot of couples will start with donor insemination. Mm -hmm. And the most common thing is to use frozen donor sperm from a sperm bank. Mm -hmm. And these are called de-identified donors. We don't call them anonymous donors because, mm -hmm. you know, these days, with all the genetic technology, nobody's anonymous. You know who, yeah. anymore, right? <laughs> Most commonly, people are using sperm from a sperm bank. And we recommend that because with frozen sperm, we are able to do all the testing. So the sperm donor goes through a lot of testing like HIV, hepatitis, mm -hmm. they sign consent forms, mm -hmm. and then we freeze the sperm for six months, and then we test them again. So using that protocol of cryo quarantine for six months, testing before and testing after, we've never had an issue with transmission of HIV or any other sexually transmitted or other infectious diseases. The other thing is you can also do genetic testing and we can make sure that the egg and the sperm don't have any high risk genetic matches. Mm -hmm. So a lot of children born with severe genetic diseases have two silent genes, one from the egg and one from the sperm. And there might be no family history at all. And and yet out of the blue, you could have this yeah. child with a severe disease. And when you're choosing sperm from a bank or eggs from an egg bank, you want to make sure that the sperm and the egg are a low risk genetic match. That's a big part of what we do. And interestingly, there's also a big legal aspect in terms of parentage. I'm not sure about laws in New York, but I know in New Jersey, if you don't do your donor insemination in a physician's office and the consent forms are not signed ahead of time and it's not clear who is the donor and who is the parent, then your legal rights as a parent could be at risk. And the donor's rights not to be responsible for say child support or something like that could be at risk. So we've had, you know, some crazy cases where, you know, people donated sperm and then changed their mind and decided, oh, now I want to be a dad and the two moms don't want you to be a dad and everybody ends up in court. So that's part of the physician's job. A good reproductive endocrinologist is not a lawyer, but they do know when it's important to see the lawyer, what consent forms to sign, how to keep you safe, not only physically and genetically, but also legally too, which is important for your family. I agree. I agree. That's so helpful, Doc. Speaking of all of this, talked about miscarriages, talked about infertility, talked about science and advancement of science. I feel like a big hot topic of this year is the vaccine for COVID-19. Yeah. And uh, we've seen it, Doc, right? We, we've seen, oh, if you get the vaccine, you'll shed infertility to someone next to you. Or the vaccine itself will infertile or give you higher rates of miscarriages. As the expert, as the OBGYN, what is your statement on all of this in regards to the COVID-19 vaccines? So I really want all my patients to get the vaccine. I want you to get vaccinated. Whether that you're pregnant, trying to conceive, breastfeeding. We have looked at a ton of data and the stories that are out there that the vaccine could cause male or female infertility or miscarriages are just that. They are kind of internet stories that took off. But when you look at the actual data, we are seeing that the vaccines are very, very safe and that the rates of miscarriage or pregnancy issues are actually just the same as people who are not vaccinated. But the rate of COVID 
And the rate of severe COVID is much higher in unvaccinated people. And pregnant women are actually in a high-risk category. You know, even though you're young and healthy, if you're pregnant, you're up there with the people with heart disease in terms of risk for dying from COVID. And we know that actually the babies get some really helpful antibodies when their moms are vaccinated. So the pediatricians actually are really in favor of it. So ACOG, American College of OBGYN, American Society for Reproductive Medicine, SMFM, Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, the CDC, all strongly recommend that women and men trying to conceive and women that are pregnant and breastfeeding get the COVID vaccine. And we are seeing that pregnant women are actually one of the categories where the vaccination rate is kind of low. Mm -hmm. And we're worried because we got the Delta variant out there. And as a pregnant woman, you're at much higher risk for getting severe disease and even, you know, much higher rates of deaths. And you shouldn't be because you're young and healthy. So we really would love for people to get the vaccine. I'm sure you saw them. I tried to put up a lot of videos on my account. Yeah. And and I know you've been doing that too. And we still have a lot of work to do because people are nervous about it. But there is a lot of great data. And people who are vaccinated, we're seeing the V-safe data. Mm-hmm. We already know that tens of thousands of pregnant women are in enrolled in that database. So the database of pregnant women is already much larger than the original trials. And the data has been really reassuring so far. Yes, and thank you for that because that clears up a lot of things. In regards to also the hesitancy and fear of pregnant women or childbearing women who want to get the vaccine, it's very understandable, you know? It's yeah. such a sensitive time where you want everything to go right and we have this vaccine that came out and that's why education is so important. So thank you so much, Dr. Serena, that you're one of those people who are advocating for the best interest of your patients. And well, Chris, I like to say pregnant women deserve health care too. Okay. I agree. We, I, we have so many, we, you know, we're guilty of it too. Healthcare mm-hmm. providers can be guilty of like, oh my gosh, this person's pregnant. I can't yeah. touch her. And yet we have to make those same decisions, the risk-benefit decisions. Pregnant women that need medical treatment should get medical treatment. Yes, you have to think about the pregnancy, but just because you're pregnant doesn't mean you don't deserve medical treatment. And it's the same with the vaccine. And clearly the benefits outweigh the risk. Dr. Serena, thank you so much for all the education you have given to us tonight. I have learned so much. and again, We have so the... much more we could talk about. I know, so. I know. <laughs> but and not enough time. But this is what I say, that this is not the last time that we will go on the live. We'll, we'll have another live stream. So I think the biggest message is one of hope mm-hmm. because I do know that infertility is an incredible struggle. And it's tough because there's still a lot of secrecy and shame and stigma that surrounds it. It's not something, you know, you talk about out in the open. And so you don't get a lot of support. So you do have to be kind to yourself and good to yourself and get that support. And most importantly, get informed because the technology is there and there is a way and there's a lot of resources out there. I think that's the biggest message. I don't want people to lose hope. I want people to learn and educate and support themselves and be healthy, but get some support because there's really a lot of reason for hope these days. And thank you because you are one of those beacons of hope and support for many people. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good night. Have a great night. Have a great night. Thank you, everyone.